0: So you sell that to so many customers and you're an expert on how they should be buying. They're not necessarily an expert on how they should be buying as well. So you have a very consultative sort of like physician-like role to play here. And that's why it it is really important to, to fix that problem, the underlying problem, not just the symptom that's observable, you know. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger insights, and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence.
1: Our guest in this week's episode is a sales enablement leader at one of the most iconic tech brands in the world. Over the last 17 years, he has played a key role in enabling astronomical growth for his business across Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and India. He is passionate about enablement strategy, enabling enablers, and attracting more people to the noble profession of enablement. Please welcome Salesforce's Senior Director of Enablement, Phil Cleary. Phil, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having me today. It's awesome to have you on the show. We've been connected for a while. I was keen to have you on the show for a while, so I'm even more excited that it finally worked out. Phil, you've got quite a profile in the Australian market, but for those international listeners that might not know you, what's your background and what do you do now? My background is I'm
0: I'm Irish originally. I joined Salesforce almost 17 years ago. It was 2004 when I was a a young slip of a lad back in Dublin. In those days, our European headquarters was there. I started as an SDR. I was a sales development rep. I was qualifying inbound leads for Salesforce. I'd been sort of a field rep before that. i have been selling networking hardware devices like firewalls and switches and pabx telephone systems and that kind of thing but when i joined salesforce transition of industry and role and so i took this this internal role for a while but loved it really enjoyed you know the technology and the process and the craft the discovery calls you would do with customers and learning about all these different businesses and what their dreams and aspirations were and how they wanted to fix some of the problems they had and so really loved that Spent about four years as a salesperson at Salesforce after that, based in Dublin, but selling into uh, primarily the UK and Nordic markets as well. And then in about 2008, I got a tap on the shoulder. The company was just introducing this new function called sales effectiveness. They kind of said, we know you have ambitions, you know, to move into sales leadership or progress your sales career. We have this new role here, and it's really all about enabling all of our salespeople and taking the load off our sales leaders around that onboarding function. And we noticed that you're a very keen mentor on the team. You love showing your newly hired colleagues how to use Salesforce as our internal CRM system, how to run their discovery process, how to run a sales cycle. So would you like to be able to do that for us? You know, just do it for a year and then you can come back to your sales role or, you know, be into sales leadership if roles are available. And I said, yeah, sounds great. It gives me opportunity to do all the things that I really didn't have that much experience doing, but I really wanted to get better at like public speaking, engaging at a leadership level, and sharing sort of my passion for making other people successful as well. So it gave me all these things. It took away some of the annoying things about sales that we all know, the monthly forecast, the customers that let you down, all the things that we did not love about sales. And so I moved into that role. And then 13 years later, I'm still here in enablement doing that right now. I did manage to get an opportunity to relocate with the company, which was great in about 2011. They said, I was kind of keen for an international relocation, and they really were looking for somebody here in Australia to kind of set it up and get the APAC function going as well. So they relocated myself and my wife down here a bit over 10 years ago. Since then, we've had a couple of children who are very Australian. There's no Irish accents in our house, it's all Australian. And so we've really put some roots down here, and I think we'll be saying for the foreseeable future. But today, I run the APAC sales enablement delivery team. So my sort of responsibility is all the way over to India, covering ASEAN, China region, and Australia, uh, New Zealand as well. My team delivers all of our enablement programs, whether they're, they're corporate programs that are coming down that are standardized, or their local programs we've developed ourselves. I essentially run a, a team of highly capable, experienced trainers today.
1: Awesome! What a journey. Yeah. Well, I brought you to Australia, so that's awesome. You're also quite involved in the Southern Enablement Society. Yeah. Which is generally considered the Ivy League of self-enablement communities. Sales enablement Society recently ran a conference called the SES Experience 2021. I was lucky enough to be there, but for those people that might have missed out, what were some of the key insights that came out of the conference for you?
0: I think it's kind of hard to go past the keynote with Peter Ostro from Forrester. Just incredible insights, you know, and it was insights that came from all of us as members as professionals, and sales-enabled professionals. We all contributed to the survey and we shared our experience, our knowledge, and what we see happening in the industry right now. But I think the collation of that and seeing is what I'm experiencing is what other people are experiencing, I thought was some really incredible insights. And some of the top highlights for me was really all about the difference between high performing organizations and non-high performing organizations. And so the way Peter defined that was organizations that had achieved 70% of their quota for two successive years for the last two years. And then when he looked at over the last year, within those high-performing organizations, there was an increase in rep attainment. So 68% of reps actually hit their quota in the the last 12 months, which is kind of incredible considering the pivot we've gone through, the shift, the pandemic, working from home, what's happened with the economy. Certainly the economy is is recovering strongly, but I think it's been notable that those organizations that have really invested in their reps and have become those high-performing orgs had some really strong outcomes over the last 12 months as well. So I think that was the first thing was that revenue attainment has really kind of picked up again. Second thing has been this sort of expansion of the definition around sales enablement to this broader idea of revenue enablement as well. And that sales enablement isn't just about those salespeople, it's about anyone that has a customer facing role that drives revenue. And it could be a pre-sales engineer. It could be a post-sale customer success manager. It could be anybody that has that level of engagement, which is all about driving your customer success, driving adoption of your product, driving future revenues through upgrades and renewals and add-ons, et cetera. And so I think this shift towards revenue enablement has been fascinating and looking to kind of specialize within enablement teams as well, to be able to face all those different audiences at different parts of their journey, depending on their maturity levels as well. I think the other interesting thing is, is this concept of ratios. And so like, for a long time, over the last 10, 12 years, I've really noticed that in, in enablement, we can kind of be a little bit like navel gazing, but also kind of look into others or organizations. And we meet regularly in the sales enablement society. And we're always asking like, what's your ratio? Is it like a 1 to 50 ratio, like one enablement person to 50 salespeople? Is it 1 to 80? Is it 1 to 120? Like how are your, your ratios working out? I think that is is conversation that's happening less and less all the time which is interesting to me. And I think it goes back to this idea of, of specialization around the role, specialization around the function that you play, engaging with the business or delivering enablement or building content or designing your learning curricula. So I think that that specialization aspect really means that the ratios are less applicable now. And of course, we're in this virtual world. So this one-to-many is so much more applicable. It's not about getting, okay, we have we've 20 reps that are in Melbourne. Let's get them into a classroom together and someone flies down to deliver something. It's like every rep inside of Australia, every rep inside of, of India, or every rep across all of APAC all comes onto the single event using Zoom or whatever your preferred webinar platform is. I think the ratio conversation has kind of gone away to a certain extent as well for those few reasons. I think as well, Felix, competency frameworks are kind of coming more to the fore again, more and more. It might be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, Forrester obviously have some strong frameworks they can help their customers with on that front, but I definitely see that coming through. And across the life cycle of that rep as well, right the way from the recruiting of them, do they have the right competencies that we're looking for in this particular role? What are those competencies from a job description perspective? Right the way through to like their performance management year on year, right the way through to their promotion readiness, and then also the impact that our programs are having. When we're designing programs, and it might be something that it could be a simple prospecting program, better skills around, or in doing your research and cold calling, let's say, what are the competencies we're trying to drive there? Number one, how do we know that we're actually, we're not performing well in the competency that we should be spending our time developing content and putting our reps through the, the learning time on the particular to drive the competency? And then ultimately down the line, 30, 60, 90, 180 days in the future, have we impacted that competency as well and has that improved? And so I think that's one of those things I definitely see coming through in our business for sure, but there was a lot of commentary across Peter's keynote and also the conference overall on that. And then the last thing I think within Peter's keynote as well, is although there's there's lots of great things that are happening, enablement's getting more recognition, it's getting more sponsorship, it's landing in the right part of the business, et cetera, the same old problems are still there that we're all experiencing together. Things like tech integration, things like true sales advocacy as well, like listening to the sales business and really giving them what they want rather than what we think that they want as well. And also then access to high-quality data that we can actually depend on that is available maybe in the business, but has some level of like, it's difficult to get access to because of where it's stored or because of security concerns or confidentiality, et cetera. So if you can't get access to that data, it makes it then difficult to align to the business and an enable we should be not aligned to what the business is trying to measure. And if we don't have access to that data, it makes it really hard to do. So I think there's some of the things that I heard coming out of Peter's keynote overall. I think if I look at the audience, it's awesome we see it growing really broadly. I think that the diversity of the sessions is changing. I think that's driven by the diversity of the companies that are really driving enablement as well. You know, once upon a time, it was kind of like the Silicon Valley tech companies. And then people that grew up and were reps at or were sales leaders at those technology companies, the sons of Salesforce, let's say, they were like, well, I mean, Salesforce had enablement, so we need to have enablement. So there was a bit of a trend around those companies standing up enablement functions as well. But I think what we're seeing now is it's not just tech. It's manufacturing, it's telecommunications, it's pharmaceuticals, it's all these different construction organizations now. They all have enablement as well. So that's the first thing is the industry, the size of the companies. So SMBs are now investing in enablement, whereas it kind of, it was almost, you had to wait until you had like five or 600 reps before enablement would sort of show its face. Now it's coming in with much smaller teams, I think is really notable as well. And companies coming with different stories and different reasons for needing enablement. How they've approached it as well, I think was really apparent in the conference. And I think the final thought on that as well is the local appetite. So I think was depending on where you are in the world and how accessible the time zones were for the live content, everybody was interested in going back and watching the recorded stuff. And that's kind of the gift that virtual has given us. You know, we're not getting on planes and flying to Texas to attend an event or Atlanta as it was going to be. We're attending virtually, but we get to record everything and we get to archive and we get to review it again. And so we, as a, as a local community of sales and even professionals, we would get together every day around that event and sort of talk about what we saw, what we liked and what we noted and what did everyone else think. We have a bit of a round table on it. And I thought that was really cool because it really drove that community feeling. It meant that if I missed some of the content overnight, I got a bit of a highlights package of what, you know, I might go back and watch again. And so I thought that was really key. So great event. Looking forward to maybe getting to go to a live one at some stage in the future, but I think that the virtual platform works really well this year.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm still going through the recordings. It takes a long time, there's a lot. It keeps on giving on my end. Yeah. If you are a regular listener of the State of Sales Enablement podcast, chances are that you enjoy learning about strategic sales enablement as much as I do. Sales Enablement Live is a weekly live stream where we do deep dives and Q&As on sales enablement topics like buyer journey mapping, sales technology, coaching, sales content and more. If you want to be part of the conversation and receive notifications about upcoming sessions, please make sure to register on thestateofsalesenablement.com. That's thestateofsalesenablement.com. Join the conversation every Wednesday, at 12 p.m. Australian Eastern Time, which is Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm looking forward to catching up with you on Sales Enablement life. I totally agree what you're saying about the profile that has probably changed over time of sales enablement professionals, but also businesses that are doing it. Certainly Austra- in Australia, that's what I'm seeing more and more of is that even if it's not a dedicated sales enablement resource, the business case for sales enablement initiatives is such a no-brainer. And especially if you think about the fluidity of the sales workforce these days, like a lot of people are making the move and change employers. Yeah. And if you think about the potential for staff retention, the potential to maximize the impact of the existing staff without having to hire more and more people to make up for the ineffectiveness that's currently present in the sales process, those kind of things make it for a lot of companies that are considering making the move. It makes it such a no-brainer for them that I think from my end, certainly in Australia, what I'm seeing is that more and more companies are actually considering sales enablement for their organization.
0: I think it's a really interesting point that you made there around talent retention, but also attracting talent as well. And that becomes even more and more important. And we you know, we hear stories about candidates when they're kind of qualifying in for a role, they might be asking, well, what is technology and do you have a certain platform and I only own companies that use a particular brand of CRM or that where I'd have access to to LinkedIn, Sales Navigator or whatever. So sometimes that can be qualifiers, but also absolutely like I will sit on interviews with Salesforce as well. And candidates do ask, what does that onboarding program look like? And what would I learn? And what's the ongoing investment in me as a professional to make me grow my career? Grow my career, not necessarily only at Salesforce, but also beyond that. Like, what can I learn here that I can take and apply to every other role in my future as well? So, yeah, that's a good call as well, Felix.
1: From your point of view, I mean, Salesforce is a huge platform. There's lots of different parts to it. And then on top of that, the product is not only very versatile, but you also look after a very broad region right? with the APEC region, very diverse markets. How do you make sure in your work that you really stay strategically focused and really shift the needle for Salesforce as an organization across all those markets and across all those different product areas?
0: It's quite a meta question really, Felix. In Enablement, we sell Salesforce to Salesforce in many ways. Like We're driving our reps and our leaders, and everybody else that's on the platform, we're trying to drive them to consume and use our platform more. So, what's really important for us is like everything that we do, it's always about showing the value. So, we always talk to our customers, how do you drive adoption? Certainly, it's about showing the value. Why would I do this? And there is that saying, if it's not in Salesforce, it didn't happen. And that's great. But, like, if I'm a salesperson, do I care if you believe me if it happened or not? And that becomes important around things like forecasting accuracy and driving deal life cycles and coaching, et cetera, for sure. But I really have to see the value. Like, if I'm going to use this platform and spend my time updating my opportunities and giving it, you know, accuracy around, where the deal sits in the life cycle, what stage it's at, what percentage probability it has, what date it might close, and where it sits within the forecasting categories as well. Okay, that's great. And and obviously, what the deal is worth. That's great, and it's good for my leadership, but how does it help me as well? And so, as an example, that's one of those ways we have to show the value to the salespeople or the value that, well, if you're accurately sharing that, it makes it much easier for the business to coach you and help you and align resources to make sure that you're getting the right level of pre-sales technical support, or you're getting the right level of industry insight, luminary assistance on it, or you're getting the right senior executive sponsorship on the deal to help you close this deal to the maximum value you can. And that's what really drives it for our salespeople, is showing them, make sure they understand and follow through on that, that they will get value from using it in the first place. I think the second thing is, we, over the last number of years, have been implementing a selling methodology, a kind of an internal methodology, at Salesforce, that we we've rather internally the customer 360 methodology, because everything we do is our methodology needs to make sure that it aligns to our customers buying and adopting consumption cycle of our platform as well. So it's all about aligning around the customer. So it's the customer 360 methodology. Now it's really all about thinking about our sales process overall. You know, we're not too different from most other sales organizations, particularly technology sales organizations. We want to qualify an opportunity. Is it real? We want to do deeper discovery. We then want to share a solution. Here's what we think we can solve your problems, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. Do you agree that we would solve this problem better than any other platform or a solution on, on the market right now? Okay, great. Would you like to have a commercial conversation? Here's what our contract terms and conditions might be. Here's the price that we can agree at. We close that opportunity and then we begin the customer management and help them to drive adoption, help them to drive success, aligning the right resources from a customer success, manager perspective, et cetera. So we're thinking about how do we get that process that it's it's been successful for us, but standardize it so that if I'm a rep and I'm in Boston or I'm in Bangalore or I'm in Brisbane, that I'm using the sales process and I have the same definition for each of those different stages. And so if I've just done a demonstration of the product to my customer, that it's a stage four in Brisbane and not just a stage two in, in Bangalore, for instance, we're maintaining standards and consistency on top of that. We've done that with this methodology. We, we have several different processes depending on sometimes the product or the part of the, of the world or the size of the organization that you're selling to or the industry maybe. And we try to standardize it on the processes, but we also standardize it on the methodologies. And so we've taken the best out of a lot of different methodologies that we've all learned and loved over the years and used. And they form part of this bigger methodology. And like any methodologies, when you sit it on top of, of a process, you need to have, certainly there's different points in that methodology where there's customer engagement moments. So is it a qualification or discovery call? Is it the meeting where you're pitching a solution or doing a demonstration? Is it part of the process where you're meeting with more people in the organization to try to build in a really strong business case with them? What are those different customer engagement moments, or those kind of ceremonies, you might call them, and how do we maximize that by making sure we're consistent about how we prepare for them, how we execute them, and how we follow up with them as well? So it's kind of that first thing of the engagement moments. There's also then this idea of the documentation, the templates, and what we're calling the artifacts that we use. So is there an account planning template? Is there a territory planning standard, a standard methodology we should be using? Is there a template that we should be using for gathering research? Is there a template that we should be using for sharing what our educated research, but initial point of view looks like for the customer? And how do we drive that consistency as well? So again, if I'm in India or if I'm in Singapore or if I'm in Dublin, that I have the same way of really forming that point of view or the customer that really helps them to answer, or at least why we think. Why change? Why salesforce why now? That's the key thing is we do that initial research we say we see what's happening in your industry. here's the trends and some of the external factors. We think these are your priorities in your organization based on the conversations we've had or your shareholder report or whatever it happens to be. We think you're trying to achieve these things right now. We probably see these things getting in the way. these are maybe your obstacles that are making it difficult for you to achieve those priorities or here's some opportunities for you to leverage trends that are happening in your industry. But what does that look like for you so if those things are happening right now, What is the cost of not doing anything? If you do nothing, what's the cost of missing out? So you don't drive your revenue, you don't reduce your costs, you don't drive your productivity in many different ways. What happens if you don't do those things in a guesstimated dollars and cents sort of shape so we can prioritize across those different things? But by the way, we think we could help you in these ways in terms of business outcomes with Salesforce. Here's what your future state might look like. If you did those things, this is what your business improvement might look like. And we're having a bit of an initial POV. We don't know for sure, but we think is what it might look like. Here's why we think Salesforce is the only solution that you can do that with because of our level of customization, the way we surround our customers, our ISV ecosystem, and the success our customers have had to date as well. And this is why we think you should do it now, because there is a cost of waiting. And if you don't do something, the rate of return obviously decreases over time. And so again, it goes back to why change why Salesforce, why now? So that's just one example, Felix, of like one of those templates that we give our, our reps that we pull them through. So there's the ceremonies with the customers, there's the artifacts that we'd like them to use. And there's also the final thing is qualification milestones. And so as you go through that methodology, and for us, it's, it's a wheel because it surrounds the customer, of course. And so how do we move from where we are just listening to the customer and doing our research to when we're actually we get that sponsorship and they say, you know what, you're close on what you just said about our business. We think you have a good idea of what we're struggling with and what we're trying to achieve and how we could get there. I, as a senior decision maker in the business, will sponsor you to go deeper, to learn more, to get access to some of our data, and to really show us how you can make a difference. Because you're close to the hole with your initial shot, let's go again with some better access to information. So then you're building trust and you're sort of sharing the solution. Here's what we think we could help to this extent. And then you're moving into that phase where you're partnering with a customer. You're saying, okay, we've agreed that you have a situation, you're trying to achieve something, we agree we can help you with that, but we're best positioned. How do we do that? And so what products does that look like? How long would an engagement look like? What would an implementation project look like? And we get all that alignment and we partner with them to the point that they then invest and they become a Salesforce customer. But that's only the beginning of the journey, of course, because then we need to drive that adoption, that success to make sure that we make them so successful that they have to renew. They might grow, they might add on, and they might upgrade over time as well. And so they're all things in the interest of the customer, that we try to drive this consistency around as well. Now, how do we then make that real for our salespeople? And in terms of driving that consistency, yes, we have the consistent methodology, and we drive a lot of the training and the enablement on that in a self-paced platform. We push our training out through internal platform that we have. You consume it in your own time with deadlines, of course, and there's some certification that kind of goes around that. But then at a local level, We put a lot of energy and time into what we call pull through. And so that might be something like that example that I talked about, that initial POV, the point of view, that inside of Salesforce, we brand the connected vision. How do you connect all these different things to provide a vision to the customer? And how do we then make that real? So everyone does the training, but we then get into a workshop together. They bring an account or an opportunity that they're working on. And they apply that particular framework to that opportunity. And so they they start answering the questions. Well, here's my external factors, here's the priorities, here's the why Salesforce, what changed why Salesforce why now? And it's a flipped classroom. And they work in breakout groups and they come back, they present, and they share, and they all get ideas from each other. And for me, it's kind of easy because I'm just a facilitator. I just get people together by frame it in terms of that overall framework and the template, they go off and do the work and then they come back and teach each other. And I think that's some of the key ways that we really drive the consistency even though we have lots of different regions different countries economies happening in those countries standards around buying we try to be consistent by applying the methodology to everything we do
1: yeah what amazes me about big sales enablement roles like yours is probably the amount of data that you gather around what works and what doesn't right yeah There's a lot of complexity involved, of course, but you then also have a huge sample size of the effectiveness of the kind of things you're trying to implement. So I can imagine that you greatly benefit from that.
0: We're lucky. We're lucky in those days. It wasn't always that way. You know, again, when I got into this in 2011, we didn't have that data, but certainly we've kind of, we've gathered it over time and data has become more important for us in terms of enablement consumption as well. Like My team spends a lot of time, probably 20, 30% of our time on tracking tracking attendance, tracking CSAT numbers, tracking impact on the business, has an increased pipeline or revenue or cloud mix, we call it like the share of wallet, et cetera. We're tracking all those different things as well. Data is king, yeah,
1: for sure. So in your work across the APAC region, what were the kind of things that you saw happening during the pandemic that has really affected the way you work, that your sales team works?
0: There's all the usual stuff we've seen. If you're not going to get great at virtual delivery, virtual facilitation, go home kind of thing. People are not going to pay attention or, or dial into your session if they're not going to get something out of it. So that's kind of like table stakes. We've definitely seen that happen. And training and enabling our team, not only around delivery, but also content creation to make sure that, that it works well in a virtual environment. And what I have been seeing recently, maybe before lockdown, is sort of the earlier part of, of 2021, when parts of Australia were, were opening up under certain protocols, and depending on the office, we would see teams of people wanting to learn together. So even though our trainer might be on their own in their home office or wherever it happened to be, the team might attend all together. And they'd sit in a big meeting room and they'd all go through the training at the same time. And in their breakouts, they'd be working together you know, in person, whereas the trainer could be anywhere. So that's been an interesting kind of phenomenon is that people have wanted to come together, not necessarily to attend and be in the same room as the trainer, but certainly be in the same room as the other learners. I've seen that, or at least a group of other learners together. So I've seen that happen. I think we've really taken that into account. And so like going forward, like for a long time, I've had a, a webinar room. Salesforce in Sydney were based in, in Darling Park, and when we were taking over one of the, the floors. I had some input in terms of some of the the uh, facilities that we'd had. And one thing I asked for was a big training room. But the second thing I asked for was a webinar room. And so they gave me this fabulous soundproofed, decked out webinar room. I put seven or $8,000 worth of AV equipment into it that's still sitting in that room. It's not in my home office today. I use that particular webinar room because it's a lockable room and certain people have access to it. But also, it's perfect for me on my own, but to be able to deliver it to an audience. It's almost like they're in a, like a cinema theater where I'm on the screen and they're sitting in a bigger room attending and watching together in some ways. Now that we're now building the Salesforce Tower down at Circular Quay in Sydney at the moment, which whenever it's finished, I think the end of next year, it'll be the tallest Office Building in Sydney. We'll have a dedicated floor for enablement. And that'll be like five or six different large training rooms with different configurations and removable walls, and that kind of thing large amphitheaters for larger training events for several hundred people together, but also quite a high-end webinar and studio room as well, where we'll actually be able to do something with green screens, a lot more you know tools to be able to deliver live training, where you will be the person in the studio, either recording or doing things live, and then the consumers being together somewhere else. So I think that's one of those trends I've seen coming through. And the last thing as well, and I don't know whether you're, you're hearing this from your clients as well, Felix, micro-learning. People are really interested in, okay, I want to learn something and I want to learn it when I need to know it. So there's just some time idea, but I want to be able to learn that thing while I'm exercising during lockdown. So I'm going for my five kilometer walk in my, my LGA. Let me listen to like 15 or 20 minute podcast that allows me to learn while I'm out doing that. And then I can come back and, and apply what I've just learned to what I'm working on today. So it could be what's the best practice around a POV or a mutual success plan for a customer, or the best ways to introduce a price increase to a customer, whatever it is, give me this particular little bit of learning so I can use it immediately. So micro learning is the last thing, I think.
1: I love the customized webinar room. That sounds like a a dream for anybody who loves that sort of equipment, me included.
0: We'll have to do another podcast together in that room when you're open then, yeah.
1: That's right. So, Phil, Salesforce obviously a technology company. You provide a lot of technology that can actually support the sales team of your clients. How do you think can business leaders really ensure they successfully introduce a tech stack that now supports the hybrid buyer journey? Like, what are the some of the things that they should consider while introducing new tech?
0: Yeah, of course, I would have a viewpoint on this, obviously, as Salesforce being a piece of technology that goes into that tech stack. And any CRM, these kind of guidelines would apply to as well. I'm also a customer of technology platforms, and I'm a buyer of various different enablement tools. Again, I mentioned this LinkedIn Sales Navigator. We famously use that as well quite heavily. And so I'm that customer as well. So the things we tell our customers and the things that we need to make sure we do internally as well, first of all, make sure that you have a leader engagement and support from the start. So you might be a leader that that's looking to deploy something. You have to use that as a leader. Consume it. Show very publicly that you're leveraging this tool and that it's important and the decisions you make are based on what people are putting into this tool as well. So so executive sponsorship and very visible adoption, I think, is really key. Otherwise, they're like, well, why would I use it? The leaders don't use the data in it. I don't really see the value. So that's kind of the first thing is executive sponsorship and leadership on it as well. I think the second thing is get help. Get up deploying it. Get experts in whether it's consultants or partners or or internal professional services, you know, teams, et cetera, like get your team trained and qualified and ready to implement, but get help with it as well in terms of best practices. And of course, before you go ahead and you start customizing it to your business processes, or you start doing integrations, make sure that you're not you're moving an existing problem, you're just changing the postcard of the problem and moving it to a technology platform in the cloud. Fix that business process in the first place before you then move it, because that's one of the biggest issues we see as our customers are like, well, if I just move this to the cloud, it'll fix all my problems, but the fundamental process is broken underneath in the first place, right? So making sure that you're moving it to the cloud and that that process is really now aligning to that hybrid customer journey that we talk about and that we're thinking about, well, is my process best serving my customer for how they want to engage with us today and where our sort of selling cycle begins with our buying cycle because their buying cycle begins way before they ever talk to us or we even know about them. And so making sure that we're thinking about that, but also in this virtual world, it's not just this in-person process that it is people are buying asynchronously through e-commerce. They enjoy doing it that way. They want to get service that way as well. So making sure that you're for that buyer consumption life cycle that you're aligning to what that looks like for them, for things like your e-commerce front end or or support portals you might have, or even your social front ends, if you're servicing people through Facebook or Twitter or even in LinkedIn, et cetera, making sure that you're aligning to what their preferences are as well, where they want to be engaged with. And I think the last thing is about sizing. and What I mean by that is using the right edition or version or, level of complexity of that tool. Because every tool that comes out has like, there's a small business version, or like, you know, here's the basic, here's the medium complexity one, and here's the really complex one for enterprise. Don't cut corners. Use the one that makes sense for your business today. But it's kind of, I like to call this the Goldilocks effect. Don't use something that's too small for your business, but also not too big. If you use something that's too complicated, you'll lack adoption, there'll be a lot of features and functionalities you're not getting value from. And it ends up being too complex for people to use. So use the the tool that's right for where your business is today, because all of these vendors all have upgrade paths. They don't tend to have downgrade paths. From a technology perspective, it's difficult to untangle some of the, the customization and the integrations, but they'll always allow you to upgrade. And so I would say just start at the right level for yourself, but don't be afraid to go to that next tier because That's how you get more value out of your overall adoption, particularly if you're customizing and integrating with other tech tools as well.
1: Mm. I love your comment around fixing the underlying processes first. You know, like I'm not expecting by moving it to the cloud to be fixed automatically. That's a lot of challenges that I typically see and a lot of mistakes that I see businesses make that they think by applying tech to something that doesn't work, it will suddenly work. So I definitely see that.
0: So many pitfalls to that as well. It applies to so many different parts of your life, really. It's not just business. Like, you have to kind of really diagnose and, and figure out what's the underlying problem. We often coach our salespeople. We kind of say, like, you're the physician, you're the doctor here. And so when you have a customer coming to you and they'll say, I need a CRM system, and what I really need is to get better at my lead management and forecasting. And our job is to diagnose properly. Our job isn't to go, okay, I'm going to write you a prescription. The patient goes to the doctor and says, hey, I've got a really bad sore throat, therefore I have a throat infection, it's bacterial, and I need a prescription for an antibiotic. Oh, and give me amoxicillin because that's the one I've used the last time. And like any good doctor that's worth their salt, and hopefully most of them are, are going, to okay, hang on a second, I'm the doctor here, let me examine you properly. And they'll look down your throat and they'll feel your glands and they'll ask about your history, et cetera. And they'll go, you know something? It actually sounds like you've been talking too much on podcasts or webinars or whatever. You have a sore throat <laughs> because your, your voice needs some rest. So gargle some salty water and just rest your voice for the next two days. You'll feel much better. So that's just kind of an anecdote that explains how salespeople should be thinking about customers is at Salesforce and wherever you work, and whatever you sell, you sell your product or service several times a day, a week, a month. Your customer is probably buying your product or service maybe once or twice in a lifetime. How many people have gone through like a CRM purchase investment buying cycle versus how many times our reps might close anything between 5, 10, 35, 40 deals every single month? So you sell that to so many customers, and you're an expert on how they should be buying. They're not necessarily an expert on how they should be buying as well. So you have a very consultative, sort of like physician-like role to play here. And that's why it, it is really important to fix that problem, the underlying problem, not just the symptom that's observable, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that also distinguishes the consultative sellers and the sellers that really become experts in fixing business problems from just the transactional ones that just talk features and functions.
0: Yeah, because yeah, I, I want to buy from Felix no matter where he works, not necessarily from the company that he works for.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. Because I have the knowledge of the industry, of the sort of business problem and so on. That's right. Yeah, correct. Awesome. Phil, we're running out of time, but thank you so much for joining today. If people want to learn more about the sales enablement work that you do and be more involved in the sales enablement community, where can they do that?
0: Yeah, there's a few things. Obviously, reach out to me on on LinkedIn. I have a bit of a Twitter presence as well. I post various different articles and opinions, you know, through those channels also. Clearly, the Sales Enablement Society for sure as well. So we have chapters in Australia, both in Sydney and Melbourne. We've been tending to do things together recently because of the virtual environment. But when we get back in person, we'll start doing things more locally and we'll run events. So get onto the Sales Sales Enablement Society website. Get informed about what our next events are when they're happening. Follow us on LinkedIn, places like that, because you'll see them advertise as well. And just come along, come along, have a listen, share your story, ask your question, and just find camaraderie across other people that are going through what you're going through. And that's really why I think I wanted to get so involved in the Sales and Name Society in the first place was I was like, how do we make each other better? There's not enough of us that are doing this role. So how do we kind of like elevate the role? How do we make it more popular? How do we bring more talent into our industry and sales enablement and make them better at what they do? And we need a club to get together to share those best practices, regardless of what company we're from, whether we're competitors or not is not important. It's all about bettering the experience of sales enable professionals and sales teams and their successes overall. So sales enable society is probably one of the best ways to engage with me in terms of sales enablement type stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. I can only recommend it. I spend a lot of time there. So anybody who is not involved yet, get involved. It's a great place to be if you're into sales enablement. Phil, thank you so much for joining today and for your time. Thank you, Felix. I've learned a lot as always when I listen to you and yeah, have a great day. You too, my friend. See you again. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at kruegermarketingcom learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.